I was thinking about how Christ City is turning eight years old today. And I started thinking in terms of like what this year has meant, this past year and how we've grown. I started thinking about my own life growing up and different birthdays. So I just turned 39 and it wasn't very significant. It like happened last month. I was like, ah, 39, right? But we're already talking about 40 next year, right? Like, cause that feels like a level up year. Like it feels like some things should change in my life by the time I'm 40. Um, and I started thinking about growing up and how I had these level up years like a, as a child and you probably did as well, right? Like um, I think about when I was, oh, I think about when I was like 13 and I was in my yard at my grandparents' house or in their yard, they had these pear trees and they also had a fishing pond. And um, I would try to throw rocks across it and sometimes pears that fell off the tree. And one day, my stepdad and I, who was a bigger, obviously stronger person, um, were throwing these pears. And I was chucking them, and he couldn't touch it. And he got so frustrated, like a man in his 30s got really frustrated that a 13-year-old was throwing the pear farther. And I was like, I've leveled up. Like, look at me, and I'm better than you. You know, like it just kind of felt like a big deal. I remember when I was um, 17, 18, and I moved as far away as I could from Mississippi at the time, right? Um, and, um, and I got away to Oklahoma and, and just was like, I've got to level up here in being on my own. I remember when I was 21 and I got on a plane to move overseas to live in another country. And all these moments provided opportunities to, to level up. And when I think about that for us, I think about how this past year at Christ City has been a level up year. Like it's just been a year where we're finally getting some traction and we're finally growing up and into things that we believe are important. And, and with that are always growing pains, right? It's not like you're going like, oh, it's so comfortable growing. No, like growing is a very uncomfortable thing in your life. And yet, you realize that when you do level up, it provides more opportunities for you to now step into things. And so when I think about this past year, I think of it as like a level up year. But when I think about the year ahead, I think about how it's a year for us to step into things, to step into what God has for us more and more. And our mission has, has been clearly laid out that we want people, when they come here, to become followers of Jesus and they recover their life they reimagine their purpose, but they start refreshing their world. And this whole series we're doing on Acts is about learning how to become people who refresh our worlds, our spheres of influence. And I believe nowhere else do we see it more clearly in the Bible than the book of Acts about what does it mean to be this people that refresh others around you. There's actually been this kind of thing going on for several years where the, the talk has been, we are people who renew the world. But it's really hard to find that in Scripture. It's really hard to find where we're the ones that renew the world. It seems to be that Jesus is the one that renews the world. He makes all things new. But we are people who can bring refreshment wherever we go. And so I believe this passage is going to be a real help for us. And listen, I've been sitting on this sermon for three months 
And that may not mean anything to you, but a couple of you who have preached or, or you know, would kind of think about that, like, that means I'm about to go like ham. I mean, like, I'm ready to go on this sermon, and we're going to go fast and furious. But I think that you're going to find a lot of things in here that will be um, hopefully helpful to think about as we read the book of Acts. It's almost like a Rosetta Stone, what this passage provides. Like, as we read the book of Acts, we're going to see how what happens here is the wallpaper in the room in this book of Acts, how it's happening over and over and over again. And so it starts in chapter 3 in verse 1, and what we see is, we'll just read it. It says, one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, it's important for us to recognize just how normal this moment is especially when you read chapter two. Like last week, we were talking about some crazy things, right? Like they're up in this room, they're all in one accord, and the Spirit comes, and we found out that what it, when, this, when the Spirit comes upon them, the Holy Spirit attacks them like a wild goose, right? Like if you're like, what are you talking about? Just, just go back and listen to the sermon last week. Trust me, I'm a preacher, you can trust me. So anyway, it's a joke, probably can't. So anyway, you can. Um, so we saw that the Spirit's like a wild goose, and it just, like, you got to either go with it or run from it, because it is wild stuff. And so this wild thing happens where, like, there's these bits of fire over people's head, and they're shaped like tongues. That's weird, but shaped like tongues, and people are speaking in languages that they don't really know and comprehend, but they're speaking it clearly and articulating the glories of God. And then we get to chapter 3, and it says they're just going to worship at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I think sometimes we can miss out on um, how special the ordinary is when we're always trying to find more and more epic things. You ever had an epic experience and you want to keep trying to find the epic experience? It's like wanderlust and you keep going. They're not there. They have two feet on the ground and they're like, God moved and what do we do now? We go and we pray. We go and we worship. We go and do the, liter- the, um, the ordinary, like, mundane, normal things, the liturgy of our life, which is really important to see because then we find that they, in verse 2, they come across somebody. It says, now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. So you have two people, Peter and John, doing a normal thing, going to, the, um, to this ordinary place to worship, and they run across this person. And this person is coming here every day because he's poor and he's lame, which means in, a, in an ancient society where it was agrarian, like you needed to be able to use your, leg, your legs and your hands to be productive, he was at the bottom of the barrel. So he's having to beg constantly for people to want to, to help him. And he goes to this place called Beautiful, and Beautiful was the entry point into the temple. Now here's what's interesting about this word, beautiful. In the Greek, the word is horaios. And you can even see in that word how it is like, there's like time involved in this, like hour or something along those lines. Well, what the word means is coming at the right time. Also, it could be looked at as flourishing at the right time. 
which makes sense. Like when you're stepping into uh, the temple and you go through this gate, you're stepping into flourishment. That's the idea of temple. You're going to step into God's presence, and that's your best chance of getting flourishment. But think about how ironic this is. This person's life is not flourishing, is it? He comes to this place time and time again, realizing how his life will never flourish, and he's going to come and meet privileged people, walk by him, and her lives always get to flourish, and he has to live in this twisted irony of life. Now, just think of like what that meant for him, the double-down shame that he's experiencing. Here I am at this place of flourishment, and I can't flourish. I have to beg. I have to plead. And yet God has a plan for him. Because then we see that he's, he's calling out and his head would probably be, be down because he's used to people ignoring. You know how this works. You come across someone in the street, I'm just being honest, and then you tend to not want to look. Because if you have to look, you might have to give or you might have to interact. And you're kind of busy. I'm kind of busy. We kind of got to get going. I don't want to be held up there. Well, this isn't like a modern thing. This is like an always thing. And what that means is that people who are impoverished, disinherited, are just used to being overlooked, just holding out the hand and believing that nobody's going to look at them, and yet something happens. Look at verse 3. It says, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money, right? And then it says, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Now, just pause for a second and think about this. You and I tend to just kind of want to walk past, but it says he looked straight at him. I like how the ESV says it. It says Peter gazed at him. He looked intently. It's like he was zeroing in his sights to look at this person right now and not to miss it. And then it says that Peter says back, look at us. Look at us, which means the beggar would have been looking down. And he looks up and he sees two people going, I'm looking at you right now. And this moment on my end will not be missed. I see you. You ever heard somebody say, like, I see you. And you're like, no, you really don't. You really don't see me. Like, if you really saw me, you might actually have some compassion. Um, One of the greatest, if not the greatest disconnects, right, in relationships is the lack and the inability to see each other. We get so caught up in being seen that we don't know how then to see another person. And then we shame ourselves into seeing another person, regardless if we're seen or not, which makes us very resentful and bitter, and then you end up in marriage counseling. And there you go. That's how it works. Because our desire is for somebody to look at us and go, do you see what I go through? Like, not to fix it, not to shame it, just do you see what I go through? And we get so used to people not seeing that, we just assume and go into this kind of cynical, apathetic place where we keep going through life. But here, Peter will not let that happen. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it. He goes, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. When you see a person, you come across them. Do you actually see a story, a narrative? Or do you see just another thing to get past? It's an important lesson to learn here. Because we're going to see in a minute something really like big and epic happens, and we'll think that's the big deal, but the big deal is that they're looking at someone and paying attention. They're seeing a story. 
They're not just seeing someone who would have messed up in life and sinned and they deserve this, but they look at him. And so as they're looking at him, it says then that he gets up and he says, silver and gold, Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walk. And the man gets up and walks. Now we can tend to think And I tended to think growing up that the real power of the story is that this power of the Spirit came through them and healed the man. But the reality is the power of the story is they made space for the Spirit to come and move. And how did they make space for the Spirit to come and move? By being present and gazing intently at someone in front of them. Listen, I grew up chasing after big epic things in church, thinking if I just kind of get the next wave of the Spirit, the next feels, right, and the next jolt, then some kind of electricity will run through me, and then we'll see miracles happen. But it seems to be that if the Holy Spirit's wild, there's no way to control that or to even predict it. But what we can do with the Spirit is make room for it. And to make room for it isn't like, let me go hole up in my room and pray for long periods of time, which is good and helpful. Or it isn't even, let me study scripture so intently that I know them all inside and out, which is important. It is simply being where you are and all there. And when we are so present with people in front of us, it seems that it makes room for the spirit to show up. Because the power of this story isn't Peter and John's access to the spirit, The power is that they saw a man who needed access to the Holy Spirit, and in turn, they engaged. I just don't want us to miss that. That's not the point of the sermon, but that's important in this message, that we don't miss on those moments. Because what happens next in verse 9, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Verse 11, it goes on to say, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Last week, we, we left the sermon at the end with this tension. What would it be like to start thinking in terms of the Holy Spirit being this wild goose? We talked about how the early Celts, these Celtic Christians in northern UK, which would be Scotland today, that they, they believed that the Spirit was so wild that the way, and the way they talked about the Holy Spirit was calling it like the wild goose, and that there would be like either this wild goose that comes attacks you, or this wild goose chase that you would be on going after the Spirit. They believed it was so wild in that way, and, and so we talked about how that when the Spirit's at work, we can't predict when the Spirit's going to show up, but we always know the results when the Spirit shows up that people are left with wonder and amazement. Like the way that we know the Spirit is at work is when people start going, what is happening there? Right? Like what what are you doing? And many times we've tried to encapsulate the Spirit and go, well, there's a formula to it, you see, and we'll have conferences, and then you'll be able to come and learn these things and then take it back with you, which is a lie. Because you can't, like, manufacture this stuff. You only can be open to it. You only can jump in when it's happening. 
And when we live in such ways that are open to the Spirit to come and work in our lives and it be wild, when we're willing to be present with people, which is the entry point for the Spirit, we'll find that people's responses end up being, what is going on there? What are you doing? And so then Peter realizes this, that he's got a crowd, he's got an audience. And you have to think that these people who see this blind, I mean, this beggar, this lame beggar, day after day, begging at this place where he can't flourish, but others get to, the sick irony of it, you have to start thinking that they're going, am I missing out? What, is there something going on here that I'm missing out on? Like, how do I jump in on this thing? Like, I just kept thinking about that throughout this week. I wonder what their curiosity level was, the wonder and amazement behind it. See, a lot of times people have wonder and amazement, and they don't really know how to get in. We make it really, really hard. They see things going on, and they're like, well, there's a few checkpoints here before you can actually come be a part of what we're doing. But here that's not happening. Peter sees this crowd, and he goes, okay. If you want a piece of this pie and what's happening, I'm going to kind of lay it out for you. But it's kind of drastic what he has to say. Because what he's going to tell them is, is that they've missed it. And yet, even though they've missed it, they can still like be a part of it in return. I want to show you a couple of ways how, I mean, how this happens here. That they missed it. In verse 14, he's got this whole speech going on. And it's kind of intense. And I've been thinking about this line for a while now. Let's just look at this. He says to them, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. Okay? Now, a lot of times we think about, man, I've really done some bad things in life. All right? And like, I've really hit a bottom. Can we all agree that the bottom of bottoms is killing the author of life? Are we good on that one, right? Like, no matter how far down the scale you've gone, this is what they talk about in recovery circles, like, no matter how far down the scale you've gone, there's only at the very bottom you killed the author of life, all right? So be encouraged. No matter how horrible of a person you are, you're still not as bad as these people, okay? And so he's saying, like, and like, this is like, this is the conversation starter, isn't it? Um, what is going on here? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. You murdered the author of life. Great. <laughs> I mean, like, it feels like you, don't, you can't do anything else from there except to go, well, I guess I'll go home, and we'll call it a day, and then I'll just want to die. Um, so he says to them something very drastic. Here he goes, you killed the author of life. And then he says to them, verse 19, repent then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Okay, so we're going to talk about sin and repentance. And I've been told that I don't talk about sin enough, all right? Um, and so if you're here this morning or listening, this is for you, all right? I want to talk about sin and repentance for a minute. I want to talk about what we get right and what I think we get wrong about this. And I want to try to do the best I can, as faithfully as I can, with how the Bible seems to present it to us, all right? So if you're getting kind of nervous right now, good, stay nervous. All right, so this idea about sin, I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking in terms of sin as basically, 
horrible, rotten, you know, what a nasty person I can be and let me bury myself as far as I can underground. And, and then repentance being, God, I promise you, I beg you, please don't kill me or don't, don't hurt me and I'll never do it again, okay? Now, I'm not gonna ask for a raise of hands, but if I ask for a raise of hands, I bet somewhere in that you can relate. Because for me growing up, sin was always like, ah, oh, you sinner. Like, you can't even say sin in like a fun way, like, oh, sin. Like, no, it's always like, oh, sin, you know? Like, there's no easy way to use this three-letter word. It is a very difficult, in many ways, um, condemning word, and appropriately so. But let's for a minute consider, like, the word sin itself is a word that we put on a concept from Hebrew and then in Greek. And sometimes words, um, they become more than what they needed to be. They can become more toxically shaming than they needed to be. They even can sometimes become more loose than they mean to be. Because when we talk about sin, I don't think we talk about it seriously enough and I also think we talk about it too shamingly. I think both happen there. So let me, let me kind of try to break this down here. The word predominantly used, now there's, there's about three to four words, depends, depends who you study, what you think, three to four words that are used for sin in Hebrew. But the most used word in Hebrew is this word chata. Everybody say chata. That's right, you gotta kind of get guttural with it, okay? So, hata. And this would be the word that we first see used in Genesis 4 when we see the word sin first appear. And it's the word that's predominantly used throughout the Old Testament. And this word hata simply means, like, what do you want to guess it means before he puts it up? Oh, he missed it. Okay, here's what it means it means you missed it. Like, that's what the word means. We tend to want to think that it must mean you horrible reprobate. How dare you ever even show your face again in life? At least that's what I kind of tended to think growing up. Now, some of you may be like, Robin, that church you grew up in, what is going on? Don't worry. You're not telling the truth. You probably had it happen to you too. We never really thought in terms of like, when we talk about sin, what we're really saying is you missed it. Now, which one do you feel like is more maybe even inviting to interact with? Sin or a phrase, you missed it. Exactly, you missed it. Now, some of us may be like, wait a second, don't water this down. I won't, hold on, all right? Because this idea is that if you miss it long enough, there's a third layer to the word sin, chata, where this third layer means if you miss it long enough, you will live in total rejection of God and humans around you. It's what they considered evil. But the first layer to it is simply you missed it. Now, if you've ever driven down a highway before, which I'm sure you have, and you go past an exit that you meant to turn off on, what this is like, I need some feedback. What is it you do in that moment? What would you do in that moment? Ah, okay, good. What else would you do? What's that? Yell at yourself, okay? Something, something. I can't believe you missed that. Okay, what else would you do if you, were, if you missed an exit? What's, take the next exit. Thank you. Very sensible response. But for people like me and maybe other Enneagram 8s, you're like, you just rage. I talked to one person about this, 
And I was just, I, they, it backfired on me. I said, what would you do if you missed an exit? And they said, I would stop my car on the highway, put it in reverse, go back, and then go back up the ramp. And I thought, I will never spend time with you, right? Like, so there's all kind of ways. The most natural, normal response when you miss the exit is to turn around. Well, there's a, there's a word for repentance in Hebrew, and it's teshuva. Everybody say teshuva. And guess what it means? Return to the path. Hey, you missed it. Now let's return. Hey, you missed it. Hey, let's turn. Hey, you missed it. Let's return. And by the way, this is just for bonus because I'm a nerd. Um, the, the, the Jewish law, okay, so the Jewish law was called the um, halakha, and it literally meant the path one walks on. Isn't that fun? So they were saying time and time again, like, return to the path you're supposed to walk on. Like, these laws actually aren't condemnations. They're like what's what it says in Psalms 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. The ancients believed in a path, that there was a path to walk on. And that this path, if you walked on it long enough, you would get more and more life out of it. Now, you may, though, veer from the path, and that's very normal. What you don't do when you do that is beat yourself over the head and tell yourself what a horrible person you are and crawl into synagogue the next Sunday. No, what you do is you go, I missed it. Now, there are sometimes you really miss it. You need to go like, oh, my God, I missed it. Is there still hope for me? Yeah, there's still hope. But for the most part, day to day, we miss it and we simply return to it. Now, let me ask you, how much more inviting is that to want to live in, like, confessing of sin and then repentance? It's way more inviting. That's the answer. It's way more inviting. See, the way we end up talking about sin so many times is it becomes such a shaming technique on ourselves that we have this really weird codependent relationship with God that we are making deals with him that I'll never mess it up again. Please, please don't leave me. Please don't abandon me. And all we're doing is like, we basically need to go to a therapist at that point, right? With all of our abandonment issues and things like that, because the reality is God's going, I'm not gonna leave you, forsake you. And what I need you to remember is not for you to shame yourself back to me, but to remind yourself back to me. And that's the point of the spirit. Matter of fact, even in the Greek, the words, and you'll, you'll see the comparison here. And the Greek, to sin is harmartia, means to miss the mark. And then to repent is metanoia. And I love this, to rethink what you thought and do differently. Friends, so inviting when we start realizing that we can, like, confess our sins regularly. That it isn't some kind of buildup, like, oh, my God, i got to confess my sins. Like, this past week... Is, was Yom Kippur. Thousands of people throughout the world came into Palestine, Israel. It is the most celebrated, important event of the year for a Jewish person. People get amped about it. Like they don't hang their heads in it. They come in going, I've been trying to return to this path time and again, but you know what? There's a lot of times I missed it. I missed it and I didn't see it. So there's a sacrifice that takes care of all the, all the times we missed it. Like they celebrate sin and repentance. They celebrate getting to come back to the path. I think in some ways we don't, 
We don't think seriously enough about this whole sin repentance thing because we spend all of our time shaming ourselves into change. When really it's going, hey, you missed it, now let's return. Hey, you missed it, let's return. And here's what, here's what Peter's saying. Y'all really missed it. Like killing the author of life, you really missed it. And there's still room. And there's still space. And there's still time. I love how inviting that is. Love how inviting that is. Look at verse 19. It says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing, of refreshing may come from the Lord. Peter is telling all those who are willing to listen, it's not too late to jump in on this. And just like this man, you can experience something deep and profound. So stop wasting time. Stop wasting time. Like you can jump in on what's happening here. You don't have to miss this moment. He's saying to people that killed the author of life. <laughs> like if they don't, if they're invited, they don't have to miss out on this moment. Like I think that means that we're in a really good spot to not have to miss out on these moments. But here's what's really interesting. This idea of moment, because he says, repent of your sins so that times of refreshing may come to you. And this is truly, truly the most interesting, I think, key part that's happening in this passage. Times of refreshment, the word time, there were two basic concepts in the Greek of time. One, you've, you'll recognize chronos, right? Where we get our word chronology. It means linear. It means you start at point A and then B and then C and then all the way down to Z, right? Like it's this thing that happens. Today is the 24th and tomorrow's the 25th. You can bank on it chronologically. So they had this concept of time. But then there was also another concept that was used within Greek that was the word kairos, kairos. And it's kind of an epic big word. Like, there's kind of different ways to talk about it. It's like moments. It's like you could be at point A and then end up at point D. All of a sudden, whoa, how'd that happen? All of a sudden, you're back at point, if you're at point M, you're back at point C. Like, there's all kinds of things that happen with Kairos. Kairos is not ruled by the chronology of time. Kairos just inserts itself and moments happen. And he's saying to them that there are these Kairos moments of refreshing. So if the word kairos means God's time, which is that's how he's talking about it here, kairos, God's time. Well, there's another word here he uses for refreshment, anaphyxis, which means recovery of breath. Recovery of breath. Okay, so kairos, recovery of breath right? Like God's timing, God's moment, and recovery of breath. Now, here's simply what, what refreshing your world means at its base. It means you're helping people catch their breath. Friends, your job is not to go and change the world. I don't care who told you that. That is not your job. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. The Holy Spirit doesn't need you to go and change your Memphis, 
What it needs you to do is be willing to go and help people catch their breath. To help people catch their breath. And how do you help someone to catch their breath? You look at them. And when you look at them and you actually want to be with them, you start creating space for something to happen. I'm not dumbing down miracles. I'm trying to get them to happen more often. Because there's a miracle that happens when we start paying attention to people and we start looking at them. And then now all of a sudden the spirit can move between two people. Does that mean the person has to like get up and walk? Maybe, maybe not. Could it mean that you start inviting them into your life more and restoration for them begins? Yeah, maybe so. There's something about, though, helping people catch their breath. People are out of breath. You're out of breath. I've heard your stories. Like this whole Christian thing for a lot of you has been almost too much. Like it has, it's taken your breath away in not the best ways. And you're asking questions, can I just catch my breath again? Because I think I want to do this. I think I want more of this. And I think what happens for us is that we get too caught up in the epic and not enough caught up in the mundane. We go chasing after something when really what we have is here and now to interact with. Because of Paul and Peter, because of Peter and John's willingness to be in the, in the, um, in the ordinary moments, because of that, they were able to experience epic things. Because they saw that their job and their mission was to help people like catch their breath again. That God was going to give them these moments, these kairos moments. And these two words together, they're not really sure what to do with it, but they believe the best way maybe to talk about when you put these two words together would be that like repent of your sins um, so that, that times of revival may come to you. Like, growing up, I was a revival chaser. I just wanted to go hit revivals. Anybody grew up with that? There's probably like three of you in here. Yeah, basically, that's what I thought, three of you. The rest of you are like, gosh, that's weird. Uh, and so, like, I grew up going to revivals. That's what we did as good kind of Pentecostal charismatics. Like, where's that revival happening? You know, where's the prophet? Go find the prophet. Okay, get up in line. All right, okay, oh, he quit praying for people. Dang, I missed out this week, All right? No, you know, that kind of thing. Like, I just, well, I was chasing it. I didn't, and here's what revival means. For me, it was just like, like, I just wanted an outpouring of the Spirit in my life. And I didn't realize just how accessible that was. That it's just really accessible to have someone help you catch your breath and like look for these God moments because in that, that's where revival can happen. I, I like how... Um, it's in your bulletins, Madeline Langle said, perhaps one of the saddest things we can do is waste time. But being time is never wasted time. When we are being, not only are we collaborating with chronological time, but we are touching on kairos and are freed from the normal restrictions of time. In moments of mystical illumination, we may experience in a few chronological seconds years of transfigured love. Gosh, I love that. If we would just catch on to time and not like chronological time, but like in the midst of our chronological time, we give like God Kairos time to say, here we go. I'm open. Let's try it. And you find yourself in those few seconds of those Kairos 
linear times, with those, I mean, those chronological linear times, those kairos moments, you find yourself leveling up, don't you? You don't just happen to level up. It's not because you turned a certain age. It's because of certain events that happen in your life. And those events go, wait a second, there's something growth. And friends, that's what I believe that God wants for us here. I'm so proud of you. I want you to hear me say that. I'm so proud of you. I've had so much joy thinking about the makeup of this church, who's here, what people have been sticking out, and what they're going for. It excites me. And I think there's more for us. And I think there's more for people even outside of here. And they don't need to end up in here. I don't care about that. I'm a horrible church growth strategist. I am the worst at that. I don't, I don't grow churches well. But I'll tell you what I do. Like, I love the idea of giving this, passing this forward. What will it look like this next year for us to be so committed to refreshing our world, to times of refreshment, to making time for God moments for people to catch their breath and have revival? What would that look like? I think it could be fun and exciting and scary, but I think it'd be worthwhile. Let's pray. So we now go before your table, Lord, and... There is no greater Kairos moment than you giving of yourself completely to death so that we now can have such great assurance that because you're broken, we can be made whole. Um, Because you have given of yourself and shed your blood, we can somehow have this restoration, this consciousness inside that goes, God is near. We're okay. We're good. And so I pray now as we go before your table that we'd be able to experience that and even have our own times of refreshment here and now. In your name we pray. Amen.